Welcome to the Power of Technology series, making work truly secure and collaborative from anywhere, sponsored by Ingram Micro. Here's today's moderator, Vanessa Roberts. Today, we're going to talk about what secure and collaborative endpoint computing needs to look like now for full and part-time remote employees, as well as employees working in federal offices. Our guests are Tony Celesti, Executive Director and General Manager for Ingram Micro Public Sector, and Dylan Everth. He's the Senior Director for the Devices Federal Solutions Group at Microsoft Federal. All right, so let's just dive in because this is a really kind of exciting topic and really important right now. How we all work has changed dramatically, accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic, with a need to equally support workers at home and on the move and in government offices securely. Really, what are the challenges at the endpoint for agencies? Dylan, can you maybe kick us off and talk a little bit about that and maybe some things that are going on with the surface for government? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a relevant question today, especially because of how the dynamic uh, since COVID-19 has really impacted the way the government is working uh, and collaborating. Um, and I think there's an increased focus on security at the endpoint to strengthen their zero trust uh, posture. A lot of what we're doing at Microsoft is kind of carrying forward some of the original security principles we brought to bear and surface, um, and then um, going a step further to bring to light some of the maybe legacy practices that government is still on today. So uh, what that means for us is we're still investing in developing our own uh, UFI-based uh, code in the United States, which is a bit of a differentiator for us uh, in comparison to some of the other OEMs. And what that US-based code development allows us to do is to create um, firmware-level management tools for our devices that allow for component-level management uh, to do really cool, highly secure uh, component management on our product. So a good relevant example uh, for COVID-19 was we had a deployment in the national capital region leveraging this surface enterprise management mode firmware tool uh, where we had disabled cameras, mics, and wireless for this classified environment. And when they had to put their uh, employees to remote telework, they needed to re-enable that feature set for them to use these devices in their home office. And for other OEM product, they were required to go out and source third-party peripheral items. So where they had physically snipped wires on their cameras, they needed to go get a, a USB-based camera to enable that, that worker for telework. On the Surface product, they're able to toggle those components back on in a forensically sound way. So um, we're able to kind of carry forward all of that now into this new environment. So kind of that legacy security posture and, and differentiator for Surface. But what we're bringing now to bear also is that legacy authentication practice that the government has been on for years with smart cards and you know CAT cards and PIV cards. Um, and where we maybe fell short before with the lack of an integrated or kind of elegant experience for the user, we now have those integrated experiences coming to the Surface device, right? So it's carrying forward that uh, chip to cloud security posture while also meeting those legacy requirements of the government for network authentication. Interestingly, when one of the things you said made me wonder, do you find agencies asking more about that elegant experience? You mentioned that word elegant, but like I feel like that desire to have better customer experience for actual federal users is becoming more important. As kind of the premium product in the Windows ecosystem for end-user computing, you know, we really went to try to solve that legacy requirement and in integrated smart card readers in a way that also drove or increased um, user experience and usability. So I think as you look at those products, um, as maybe get an opportunity to do so, you'll see that rather than just open the chassis up and integrate a smart card reader, we actually created a design change that also allowed for an ergonomic typing experience and um, integrated some other legacy ports like integrated HDMI. Yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the keys 
and why the customer experience is so important on the endpoint device has to do with the user and the user's behavior. Because if it becomes too difficult to use in their daily operations, i.e. we lock the device down too much, people are going to strive and they're going to look for workarounds. So that experience really has to enable the things that the user needs to do with the device, but still has to provide for the security uh, that agencies need to protect both national security and the privacy of citizen information. Well, that's a good overlap to my next question, Tony, which I was wondering about some of the issues that have had to change around policy and device management. There's a lot of talk about that. We know there's a lot moving on with zero trust architectures and all those things, but also just for the ability to use these devices wherever users are. What are agencies talking to you about when it comes to that? Well, um, being so the pandemic accelerated the whole telework discussion, which led to an immediate policy change for organizations to even allow for telework. So that debate um, was essentially solved. Now we're dealing with these hybrid work environments, and that, of course, from a policy perspective, has changed many of the workflows that are involved in, in government. And so not only has it affected edge devices and cybersecurity, but it's also affected the network and the need for more bandwidth. That requires more policy uh, changes on how uh, agencies are going to, and users are going to interact. Because when they went to work from home, they had to go into their data centers and then back out of their data centers to get to their cloud solutions. So that workflow changed, and therefore the network bandwidth demands were different, and how they secured perimeters became different. Before they were inside a secure perimeter, going out for particular information, now they're inside. The other big area from a policy standpoint that we saw was people exiting the workforce. So just like it was on the private sector side, it was in government as well. So they saw a number of people retiring. Um, That's created uh, not only workforce gaps, but knowledge gaps as well. So while there's plenty of opportunity to bring in new, fresh, professional talent into the uh, government workforce, they need to be trained. And so this is creating an opportunity uh, for more training and development. And probably one of the biggest areas where they're you know, stressed today um, is on the acquisition side. Um, they, they are looking for acquisition professionals. Uh, they have big demands uh, because the government spends a lot of money and acquiring these solutions uh, takes time. Find that happening when you're working with agencies and the, the things they're asking you for and what they want it has changed radically in some of these contracts and some of these negotiations? Yeah, I mean, it really seems, seems to have changed a lot, right? I mean, I think um, rapid acquisition and ease of acquisition is certainly kind of on the forefront of what they're trying to do. We've seen that with kind of this you know, OTA process and how that's really kind of revolutionized contracting over the past few years. Um, and I think we're going to see that continue to carry forward, right? Um, not just how they acquire things, but maybe even a, a standardization of how they acquire across not just a singular agency, but multiple agencies, you know, to, to leverage standardization for security purposes, but also to leverage economies of scale. Yeah, you see that already happening with some within agencies, like you said, like a headquarters OTA, and then sub-agencies will be able to ride on that OTA or ATO, depending on if it's still the older one. But it is interesting that that is starting to change, and there are seemingly the potential for even broader changes coming up. 
Let's talk about DOD for a second and Section 889 and that supply chain security and some things that you guys have done around that. Yeah, I think um, that FY19 National Defense Authorization Act that had that Section 889 clause in it really seems to have been like a catalyst moment for the government with a focus on supply chain um, and specifically supply chain coming out of adversarial nations. Um, Microsoft, thankfully, um, at, you know, thoughtfully sourced our component products um, and you know, immediately were able to meet the Section 889 clause as it was intended to be met. Um, but I think it really woke us up and, and everyone up to the idea that we really need to do end-to-end um, attestation and validation of our supply chains to make sure that um, you know, we are as secure as we intend to be and as our government customers demand us to be. Um, and we've carried that principle forward since FY19 um, and, and are working collaboratively now with the government to shape things like you know, what we saw in FY22 in the National Defense Authorization Act, again, another um, subset that um, increases focus on secure supply chain and defining secure, secure supply chain requirements with the DOD. Um, and I think as they're looking to draft FY23. Um, and like we saw with the FY19 one, while these are coming out of the Department of Defense, uh, they really are propagating across the entire federal government. So that Section 889 clause was adopted widely by GSA and the other you know, civilian cabinet-level agencies. We've seen adoption across several of the U.S. commercial verticals, um, certainly across a few of the five-eyed uh, you know, allied intelligence country nations. Um, and we're expecting the same thing for that FY22 National Defense Authorization Act and the focus that has on uh, non-Chinese-based PCBs and PCBAs, as well as that defining of secure supply chain requirements, both uh, physical and software-based. Right, that's a huge piece of it. Can you actually document what you're telling us? Yes. Right? And you just alluded to the fact that like, it might have come out of DOD, but it has seemed to have proliferated pretty far and pretty wide. And what are you finding when agencies and customers are coming to talk to you guys about this? And what are the challenges they're having? It's pretty significant. I mean, Section 889 really was an eye-opener for everybody in that it, it just showed what adversaries were capable of doing, embedding you know, backdoors into technology. And that's why they banned the use of certain technologies in environments, because it, it opened those doors. But... Further, you know, guidance has been issued in and around the, the DFARS for the supply chain, and I won't try to rattle off the, the DFAR number by, by memory. <laughs> but then there's also the cybersecurity framework and NIST 800-171, and trying to adopt to the cybersecurity uh, uh, maturity model certification as that evolves, all to, you know, protect our national security interests and our personal information in government. So in the contracting community, you know, this is, you know, the pendulum swings and everybody's racing to get there and to be first. And, you know, as we roll it out, the government is still trying to figure out it, its policy decisions and work through them. So being first isn't always the best answer. So, at, you know, at Ingram Micro, we spend a lot of time um, trying to address the commercial uh, items, the IT commercial items, federal acquisition regulations in the FAR and the DFAR in our standard agreements with our, our partners and our vendor relationships. Uh, we go to outside sources, but we leverage our, our own subject matter expertise to educate and train the partners in these areas so that they understand them 
and, and are well aware of, of what's expected of them if they're going to participate in the supply chain. So this is not only going to benefit government, but it's also going to benefit those other 16 you know, industries and sectors that the Department of Homeland Security has identified as being you know, critical to our national security, whether it's you know, banking or agriculture or energy industry. Uh, so these things are incredibly uh, important. And then we're seeing you know, what it will ultimately do is benefit us in a much more resilient supply chain. We're gonna see more sources for similar types of technology solutions. That drives more competition. And through more competition, you typically drive more innovation, you know, as, as organizations compete. So this is a win-win for everybody as we go down this path, but it is gonna have some challenges and some pain along the way. Sure will, yeah. And, and Microsoft, specifically to our hardware products and, and Surface and HoloLens, you know, while we own a sizable chunk of what I like to call kind of the end-to-end supply chain from component all the way to government doorstep, we don't own all of it, right? And we're dependent on the incredible partnerships of Ingram Micro to kind of deliver that really important leg of the supply chain and making sure that they're meeting all the requirements of the way that they have done traditionally and, and are intending to do it, as Tony mentioned. I mean, the truth of the matter is there's fewer and fewer single procurement winners anymore. There's often teams, parties, multiple layers in them. And I think that that's kind of a testament to that and how it actually works in reality. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ingram Micro's Tony Celesti and Microsoft Federal's Dylan Evers. This is Federal News Network, and I'm Vanessa Roberts. Ingram Micro Public Sector helps their partners deliver mission-critical solutions to the federal, state, and local government markets. Ingram Micro's marketing expertise, combined with their vast service offerings, makes them an indispensable business partner. They are mission-focused on creating value for end-users, vendors, and partners by providing a competitive advantage and offering long-term value. For more information, visit imaginenext.ingrammicro.com slash public sector. Welcome back to Federal News Network's Power of Technology series with today's guest, Ingram Micro's Tony Celesti and Microsoft Federal's Dylan Evers. Let's get back to it. Let's talk about another critical aspect of endpoint computing. Now, we haven't really touched on too much. We've talked a lot about the security issues, kind of where that's evolved, but that's collaboration. You know, we kind of hinted at it when we talked about people being everywhere, but how has that really changed and evolved, and what do people need now to have collaboration, whether it's in the office, out of the office, or both? Yeah, I think uh, and I think the pandemic accelerated the government's um, use of collaboration tools. I mean, uh, almost overnight, they were required to move a sizable chunk of their workforce to remote and to still enable a level of collaboration that allowed them to meet their mission needs. Um, Microsoft was an incredible partner in their ability to go do that with the use of Teams and you know our 365 platform. Uh, and I think you'll see us continue to do that, right? And, and the adoption of that has been great in the government post-pandemic as well. Um, and then from a hardware perspective, we're wanting to light those experiences with incredible hardware that not only um, supports the collaboration, but um, increases user experience and productivity. And so you'll see that in our Surface Hub portfolio, which are just large screen digital collaboration devices with 4K cameras and mics uh, and touch interface. Um, and then we want to carry that collaboration platform forward in mobile products. So the use of LTE Advanced and 5G, and I think as you guys know, 5G is the hot topic right now, right? <laughs> so it's that anytime connectivity that commercial customers demand that our government com- customers are going to absolutely require at some point here in the near future. Um, and so we'll just continue to try to create that collaborative platform, not only from a you know, communication standpoint, but from a hardware standpoint. 
Uh, always, like we mentioned earlier, with user experience being at the forefront uh, and productivity being just an absolute demand. What are some of the unique challenges, though, to touch back to security on that authentication factor in those collaboration scenarios? Yeah, that, I mean, that is the big question, right, is, is how are they going to go solve for that? I think um, one interesting example uh, that's popped up recently is the Army's use of uh, BYOD that they're going to be piloting in a 20,000 user pilot, I believe, uh, for mobility products where they're going to allow for that um, kind of similar derived credentials authentication experience that they've enabled across the DoD today, um, but on a, on a BYOD scenario, which is, um, which is new to them. Um, and they're going to start, I believe, with the National Guard. So it'll be interesting to see how that pilot tracks um, and, and what that does to kind of revolutionize authentication at like, the far endpoint, like a, a mobile product, and maybe what that does to allow for things like drive credential virtual smart card usage on more traditional PC products, um, or whether or not, uh, as I think I would hope to see, that they start to adopt uh, more biometric-based authentication for two-factor authentication. So the use of like a Windows Hello camera for facial recognition or you know, a fingerprint reader, um, as I believe they're almost 2x more secure than right. some of the traditional platforms. Also less friction, right? Yes. I, yes. I, I think broadly, the government has always been interested in collaborating. Now there are, you know, certain aspects and areas where for security or national security, that collaboration ha has been limited. But when we look at, you know, devices and what has occurred today, um, and this is where policy will, will have to be affected. And, you know, a pilot to do a BYOD will, will ultimately have to eventually evolve into a policy change to allow for government work to take place on potentially a privately owned device. The other big challenge is, you know, where people are accessing their information. So now, you know, they can be anywhere. Before, if they were accessing the information in what is their office, a relatively controlled environment, to today, it could be your local coffee establishment, <laughs> it could be who knows where, mm -hmm. and it may not just be in their homes. And there may be information at the data level that the government is comfortable from a security standpoint having accessed in a certain location and other data that may not be able to. So there's going to be a need for geolocation tagging. Um, there's going to be a need for uh, not only policy changes, but more changes in the data management structure, as well as how we authenticate the users and the actual you know, purpose for their, what they're trying to accomplish relative to the agency's mission. Right. All the data may not be available at the edge. Exactly. Well, we have a couple minutes left, but before we go, I would kind of like to hear what each of you guys think is the big thing on the horizon for endpoint computing in the government. Just from your separate perspectives, kind of where you see that going. We've talked about a lot of different things today, but maybe there's something really amazing that you want to talk about before we leave. I think we're going to continue to see as we, you know, digitize, not just within government, but as a, as a nation, the demand for you know, end user devices uh, to only increase. Um, and we, we saw that with, with IoT, it's gonna continue. The, today, we all carry around, you know, uh, some type of mobile device with us, but we may have multiple between our watches or our, our fitness bands, um, 
you, you, things that we're now putting in our ears, glasses we may be wearing in the future that present certain information to us. Um, there's a whole host of things. And I think we're going to continue to only see the demand for those things uh, evolve, uh, evolve and the importance and the significance of the customer experience in these. We talked earlier about the maintaining being simple because if you want to secure something, you, you lock it down to where people can't use it, then they're going to try to find workarounds and that hinders security. At Ingram, we just launched uh, our XVantage platform and that entire platform is to change the online experience and how our partners interface and work with us. So we're going to deliver a, a world-class collaborative experience that changes the role distribution plays. And I think we're going to continue to see that same type of evolution on the end-user device. Dylan, what about from your perspective? Yeah, I think Tony's got it absolutely right. I think the adoption of end-user technology or the expansion of adoption is going to increase, right? I think the government got hooked on collaboration during the pandemic. And I think the speed with which they were able to adopt that collaborative technology well beyond the bounds of what policy had originally allowed them to do um, just changed the way that they look at, one, their ability to use it and, and how it increases productivity, but two, their ability to adopt it, right? They've always been slow to adopt new technologies. And um, I think they're realizing that um, they've got an in increased uh, agility that they didn't have before. And so that'll lead to things, as Tony mentioned, right? That expansion of end-user computing and things like smartwatches, um, but those wearable glasses, as you mentioned, right? And um, I think you're seeing this just if you look across industry at where uh, uh, collaboration may be going, right? It's, it's into the metaverse, right? So it's, it's augmented and virtual reality. I think the government's going to be an early adopter of that, um, certainly commercial well. Um, and that's going to change the way they communicate, not just from like a standard collaboration perspective, but just from an increased capabilities perspective. So things like leveraging Microsoft's Dynamic 365 platform for the use of remote assist and guides, two technologies that enable that remote collaboration, leveraging an augmented reality platform like a HoloLens um, to, to do that remote assist capability, right? Where you can have uh, an end user uh, out in the field, on the front line, um, requiring support from a specialist on a from a remote location and have that specialist kind of uh, um, get into that platform using that HoloLens um, to do that holographic support and to see in real time what that kind of edge user is doing and make sure that they've got the capabilities at the edge that they need. Uh, the other thing that's going to be interesting with um, this new kind of mixed reality end user compute scenario is enabling critical mission workloads. So um, where maybe traditionally someone like a FEMA would show up to a disaster scenario and have to do um, kind of legacy mapping of a disaster area, sending out people to do site surveys, et cetera. There's going to be a world here soon for the government where they'll be able to deploy drone technology to do near real-time mapping of disaster scenarios and then bring that map data into a holographic image, able to be manipulated on a frontline tactical operations center um, to be able to deploy assets where they need to be deployed. Um, in a matter of minutes uh, versus a matter of days. Um, and so it's this new mixed reality world that Windows will enable uh, and hardware platforms like HoloLens will enable that I think is the future of end-user computing. Um, I think the government and commercial customers are going to get there sooner than anyone else. This is a wrap for this discussion on the power of technology. I want to thank Tony and Dylan. I'm Vanessa Roberts, and I've been talking with Tony Celesti, Executive Director and General Manager for Ingram Micro Public Sector, and Dylan Evers, Senior Director for the Devices Federal Solutions Group at Microsoft Federal. 
To learn more about the power of technology, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Ingram Micro. Thank you for listening to the Power of Technology series, making work truly secure and collaborative from anywhere, sponsored by Ingram Micro on Federal News Network.